Last week, uh, if you guys are here, Mikey taught Matthew 24, right? In Matthew 24, it starts with Jesus sitting down with his disciples, and Jesus' disciples, they ask Jesus a question. And, and the question is, is a simple question, but it's a big question. They say, Jesus, when is the end going to come? When's that going to happen? Right? What's going to be the sign of your coming and kind of the, the sign of the end of the age? When should we expect this to happen? And Mikey talked about that last week. If you weren't here, you should give that a listen. And he gave the date and time. It's a Tuesday. It's not true. He didn't do that. Okay. He didn't do that. He's not crazy. But anyway, this is a big question, right? Jesus, when is the end going to come? Give us something. Like give us the timeline for this. And so what Jesus does is he starts to talk about the things that are going to take place before he returns. And if you've read Matthew 24, if you were here last week, it's really confusing. Like there's a lot of different opinions on what Jesus is saying. And I actually think Jesus is kind of being intentionally obscure. Because what Jesus does kind of halfway through his answer is he goes, Here, I'm going to kind of answer your question, but I'm going to kind of turn this on you. Because... The really important thing isn't when I'm going to return. The really important thing is actually if you're going to be the kind of person that's ready for me to return. He basically says, hey, you, you've asked the wrong question. And, and Jesus is actually really concerned that they've asked the wrong question. Because the reason they asked the wrong question was because they made an assumption that because of the kind of people that they were, that when Jesus returned, the kingdom of God would be given to them because of who they were. Because of their close proximity to Jesus, right? This isn't just kind of a random group of people. These are his disciples. These aren't just even like the large crowds of Jesus that follow him around when he does kind of his cool miracles. No, no, no. These are the people that follow him everywhere. His close followers. And so they assume that, of course, when the kingdom of God comes, they're going to be the ones who receive it. And Jesus is really concerned about that. And so he says, you've asked the wrong question. The important question is, are you actually the kind of person that will receive the kingdom of God when it comes. And it's interesting, Jesus, this question they asked, Jesus spends two chapters, nothing but dialogue from Jesus, just answering this question. If, if I'm not mistaken, it's the longest single answer to any question Jesus has asked. He, he's like, this is so important that you understand this. I'm really concerned that there are people here, my close followers, who think, they assume they're going to be given the kingdom of God. And they're not. And so what Jesus does is he gives three stories. Three stories about two different kinds of people. People who are ready for Jesus to come back and people who are not. And Jesus says the difference between these two groups of people, it isn't a small difference. He, he says that it's the difference between being blessed by God and being welcomed into the kingdom that God has prepared for them from before the foundation of the world or being cursed by God and being cast out of his kingdom into the darkness and the fire, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, a place of eternal punishment. And Jesus isn't telling these three stories for like the masses that are out there. He's telling these stories to his close followers, his disciples. And he means for us to listen to what he says. And so the way that Jesus answers this question is by giving three stories. Three stories that each get more and more clear of what he's trying to say. Okay, now before we read these stories, I just want to pray for us really quick. 
Jesus, this is heavy. And it has been hard to spend a week hearing you talk to me through these stories. Jesus, the end is going to come and you are going to return. And Jesus, I pray that the people who are in this room, that we would be people who heed and listen to your words because you care about us and you're patient with us and you are desperately pleading with us that we would be the kind of people that are ready for you to return. So Jesus, please make it so. Make us ready. Amen. All right. So I'm going to be way emotional, guys, today. There's a lot going on. The first story. All right, you guys ready? This is the first story. If you have a Bible, pull it out. We're not even going to have this on the screens, I don't think. Matthew 25. This is what it says. Jesus says, Then the kingdom of heaven, it will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. And five of them were foolish and five of them were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. And as the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and they slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and they, they trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Hey, give us some of your oil because our, our lamps, they're going out. But the wise answered saying, Since they're not going to be enough for us and for you, you need to go to the dealers in town. Go buy oil for yourselves. And while they left and were going to buy, the, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready, they went in to the marriage feast. And the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Okay, that's the first story he gives us. And he's, he's explaining this and he says, the kingdom of heaven is going to be like ten virgins who took their lamps to meet the bridegroom, right? Now, in, in this kind of, this day and age, like a virgin means something a little bit different than it means to us, right? A virgin just means like a young, like a young woman and actually specifically in this story, it's like a bridesmaid. Like this would be like someone who's like kind of an official part of the wedding ceremony. And, and you'd kind of mark yourself as being officially part of the ceremony by having a lantern. And that was kind of like how people knew you were official or not, right? It's like you go to a wedding and it's like people have the dress and the bouquet and you're like, ooh, that's a special person in that person's life, right? That's what's going on here. It's like they have this lantern and they're supposed to have this oil. And it says that the difference between these two types of virgins is that some brought enough oil and some didn't. Some are foolish and some are wise. And the bridegroom doesn't return when they expect it, right? So they all fall asleep. But all of a sudden there's a cry in the streets, he's coming, he's coming. So the bridesmaids, they start to light their lamps to be part of the processional and join the celebration. And the bridesmaids who have plenty of oil, they are fine. But the foolish ones, they didn't bring enough. They run into town to buy some more. But by the time they get back, the processional is over. Everyone is already at the party. And it says that the door is shut. It'd be a really scary story to hear Jesus tell you in person, wouldn't it? And so they start banging on the door. They say, Lord, Lord, open to us. And the bridegroom says, truly I say to you, I do not know you. 
And, and Jesus says that this is what it will be like for many people when the kingdom of God comes. And so he says, watch therefore. Be alert because you don't know the day or the hour. And so we're, we're kind of presented with this story and so we start asking questions about it, right? We say, okay, what is the difference between these two types of people? Wise people and foolish people? Well, the answer seems pretty obvious, right? The answer is oil. Some are prepared and some are not. They missed the party because they didn't bring enough oil. And so as you're listening to the story, you're like, okay, I don't want to be left out of the party, so I better make sure I need to have enough oil. I need to be prepared. And as you're thinking about that, you're like, I also think I need to check my oil because I haven't done that in a long time. Okay, so do that. But you're also trying to figure it out. What does this mean? What does it represent? And so the second story actually starts to make clear what Jesus is talking about. Let's read the beginning of the second story, verse 14. He says that the kingdom of heaven, it will, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. And then he went away. And he who had received the five talents went at once and traded them and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more, but he who had received the one talent, he went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and he settled accounts with them. Before we look at anything else, we should notice that Jesus describes our lives in a very different way than most of us view them, I think. At least for me. It's like there's part of me that identifies with this story. But there's a lot of me that goes, I don't actually live my life identifying with this story as representing my life. It's a very un-American idea, isn't it? Jesus' description of your personal property, it isn't your personal property. I love that. He's like, you spend all this time talking about your stuff. And he goes, it's not your stuff. I love that. Jesus says that this story is what the kingdom of heaven coming will be like. That at the end of this life, when we stand before the king, it will be like a man who goes on a journey and entrusts to his servants his property. And the way the story ends, in some way, seems to depend on what you did with that property. pretty terrifying answer to the question, are you ready for Jesus to come back, isn't it? That when Jesus comes back, it's going to be like a master who's come to settle accounts with his servants. I think Jesus means for this story to kind of shake us up a little bit. And what he's trying to do is he's trying to say, hey, hey, Christian, you, wake up. The things that you have they don't actually belong to you. You didn't earn them. You didn't work hard enough to get them. They are things that have been entrusted to you by your master. And the goal of you receiving those things is that you would maximize them and use them for his purposes in the world. Is this the way you view your things, your, your money, your time, your gifts? Is this the way you view your house, your cars, your bank account, or your food in the fridge with your name on it? Because that's all college students have. 
But it's like, right? What are the things God's entrusted you with? And when the master returns to settle accounts, will he find that you have been a faithful steward of the things that he gave you? Well, let's keep reading. We'll read from verse 15. He says, To one five talents, to another two, to another one, and each according to his ability. And then he goes away, and, and the people that have the five talents and the two talents, they immediately go out and they double the investment right away. They go out into the world, they start taking risks, and they double the investment God gave to them. But the person who has one talent, he didn't do that. It says that he, he buries it in the ground. He buries it in the ground. And so the master returns, and this is what the master starts to say to these servants. Verse 19, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received five talents came forward, bringing five talents more. Saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he who had two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I've made two talents more. And so his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received one talent came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter seed. So I was afraid, and I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. But his master answered him and said, You wicked and lazy servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown, and I gather where I have scattered no seed. That you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have at least received what was my own with interest. So take this talent from him, and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But for the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away, and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This story is a little more terrifying, isn't it? Two types of servants, right? Two types of servants, two that are good stewards of what the master has given him and one that isn't. Now the first servants, what do they do, right? They take what the master has given them and they go out into the world and they make something of it. They double their master's investment in them. They actually take risks doing this, but it pays off and in the end the master returns and he is pleased to welcome them into his joy. Basically he's saying, come, be partners with me in all that I have. But the last servant, he buries what the master gave him. He doesn't take any risks. He doesn't make any investments. But he just buries it. Okay? And Jesus explains why. He says that the reason he buries it is because he is scared. That if he doesn't bury it, if he doesn't do this safe, guaranteed, sure thing, that he isn't sure he can pay him back. Investments were really shaky in the ancient world. They're not like today, right? 
Banks were actually very unreliable. And so he does the only thing that can guarantee that he will be able to pay back his master exactly what he was given. What does it look like for us to do this? What does it look like for us to bury the things that God has given us? Well, I think there's actually many ways to do this. Right? Maybe one of the most obvious ways to bury the talent God has given you is that you just use the things God has given you. You use those things not for God's purposes, but for yours. Right? Very common. It's a very easy way to bury the things God's given you, to not use them for what he wants you to do. You don't use them for his purposes. You use his property for your purposes. And a lot of times those don't align, right? I have a line written in my Bible next to this passage. I don't even know what it was from. Probably a sermon I heard a long time ago, but it just says this. It just says, what does your bank account say about your soul? Mark Aaron Price said that at some point. I wrote it down. I don't know. But I think about that when I read this text. What does your bank account say about your soul? It says where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Jesus says that. But it isn't just about your money. Right? Some of you, you have great minds. Some of you are fantastic with people. Some of you are really gifted artists and teachers and doctors. And the question is, what are you doing with the things that you have been given? You can waste what God has given you by spending it for yourself. But another way you can bury it is actually by not doing anything with it at all. Just not doing anything with it at all. You can actually squander the things God's given you through laziness and insecurity. And it isn't that you spend them on yourself. You just don't use them at all. It's like you'd been given the kind of gifts and skills to fix the AIDS crisis, but instead you spend yourself playing a ton of video games. Or it's like you've been given the kind of gifts from God that you could be the doctor that cures cancer. And instead of pursuing that, you go and work at Come and Go. And that's not a slight if you work at Come and Go, okay? It's a great gas station. Fantastic. My favorite, okay? What's the issue? The issue isn't about how much you accomplish in the world. No, the issue of this story is are you being faithful with what God has given you uniquely? Right? The person that has ten talents at the end and the person that has four Jesus says the exact same thing to him. It's not about how much you accomplish. It's a question of are you being faithful with the thing that God has given you? The issue is that two of these servants, they were faithful and they were zealous for the things of the master. And the third one wasn't. He didn't care. The difference between these servants is that the first two, they have zeal and passion for the things that the master cares about. But the only thing the third servant cares about is not doing anything wrong. That's his whole outlook on life. He doesn't want to mess up. That is his religion. It's not a religion of worship and passion. It is a religion of trying as hard as he possibly can to not break any rules and offend his master. It isn't just that he's lazy, but it's that his laziness is calculated. Well, what does this servant look like today? Well, I, I think that when it comes to finances, what this servant looks like today is someone who gives 10% of their money to the church faithfully every month and never a dime more. Never a dime more. Right? You've sort of concluded in your heart that, that this is what God requires of you and this is what you need to do to not get in trouble with him and so you do it. 
But you won't do anything more than that. Right? You pass people in need and, and, and you justify yourself because you're faithful to always tithe 10% or you see needs in the church or you see other brothers and sisters around you and you don't help. You have people in your extended family that are desperately needy but you justify yourself because you have done all that is required of you. I think that that is exactly what this servant does. He doesn't take any risks for the sake of his master. He's only concerned with himself and his own skin and he buries the money because that's the only way he can ensure he will be able to pay back his master the exact amount he was given. And, and listen, that's his goal. That is his master's goal. It's to give back exactly what he had received so that at the end of his life he can say, here you go, God. I paid you exact, back exactly what I was given. Not more, not less. There you go. We are even. I owe you nothing. The problem with his servant isn't that he didn't multiply the money. The problem is why he didn't. It's why he didn't. Look, look at verse 24. Jesus gives us the heart of this man. He says, Master, I, I knew you. His view of his master is this. I, I knew you to be a hard man. Reaping where you did not sow. Gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went. I hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. Even though he is in the same receiving line is the rest of the servants and he gets a talent from the master, he has a completely different view of the master than the other servants, right? Look at like, the words of the other servants, right? They view the master as kind and generous and when he comes back, they, they talk about the talent that God gave them. They're like, you gave me this and they're with joy. They're saying, you did that for me. This servant never talks like that. It's a totally different way of talking. He says, I hid your money in the ground. Here, have what is yours. They highlight his generosity towards them and the relationship that they have and they are delighted to show God what they were able to do with what he graciously gave them. But the other servant, his view is completely different. This master isn't generous, he's stingy. He is brutal and he is exacting, reaping where he doesn't even sow. Your view of God will determine the way that you use the things he's given you. Your view of God will determine the way you use the things he has given you and the way you use the things you've, God's given you. The way you use your things, they actually give you a window into the way you view God. And this servant's view of his master, it was not the same of the others. And because of this, he buries his talent. And we can look at this story and we can say, well, well, this is not really a fair situation, right? Because these first two servants, they're given like five and two talents. And the last one is only given one. And so they were given more. They could take more risks. They had this kind of certain level of privilege the other one didn't have. But you know how much a talent is? It's a unit of money. A ta one talent is 20 years of wages. It's like a million dollars. It's like a tremendous amount of money. And it's like what Jesus is saying in the story is he's saying, yes, God does give people different abilities and he gives them different gifts. But the one thing God doesn't give is cheap gifts. 
He doesn't do that. God has given you something that is valuable. It may be a personality trait. It may be your intellect. It may be your ability to make money. I don't know what it is, but there is something that God has given you that is a gift that has value. And there is a day coming when the master of those things will come back and will settle accounts with you. I'm not speaking about these things as someone who's unaffected by these words. I'm not talking to you about, but with someone who's like unaffected by this. Like this chapter of the Bible is one of the reasons we're moving to Madison. Like it's one of the reasons we're moving. Like there's nothing wrong with us staying in Iowa City. Like we love this place. We love our home. We love you guys. You are our friends and our family. We have shed so many tears about the idea of leaving this place, but at the end of the day, we are asking the question, how can we leverage everything we have for the kingdom of God? Not some of it, but all of it, all of our lives. We don't just want to be part of the kingdom of God when it comes. We want to do everything we possibly can to bring the kingdom of God to earth now. We want to be good stewards of what God's given us. And our answer is the best way we can steward the things God's given us and care for the things that God cares about is actually to leave the home and the people we love and move to a city where it seems like there might be more need for the kinds of gifts God's given us. These words of Jesus have profoundly shaped our lives and following them is risky. It isn't safe. It isn't comfortable. But we don't take the words of Jesus lightly and I hope that you don't take them lightly either. Do you live your life leveraging what you have for the things that God cares about? Or do you live a calculated, safe life trying to figure out exactly what is required of you for salvation and doing that and nothing more? It's a completely different way to approach life. And Jesus continues on and he gives us this third story, the clearest of them all. And he says this in verse 31. He says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all of the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous, they will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? When did we see you thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, 
into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry? or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you. Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Before we talk about this story, you have to understand something. Jesus isn't talking to his followers about hell from a distance from that. Like we actually know that in a very couple short days after talking about this, Jesus is going to experience hell on behalf of sinners. He, he's talking about hell because he knows what it's like. He embraced and took on hell on behalf of sinners. I know this is a hard thing to talk about, but you have to understand Jesus is the only one who can talk about this. Jesus talks about hell more than any other author in the Bible combined. He talks about it all the time because that's why he came. He came to embrace hell, to experience the fullness of that so that you wouldn't have to. And so I don't want you to get turned off just from hearing those words read, oh, this, this fire and brimstone stuff. I'm just going to shut off. No, don't do that. Jesus is not speaking to you as a wrathful, vengeful God. He is speaking to you as a God full of grace who knows what hell is like because he experienced it on your behalf. Listen to his words. The first story, we have people waiting for a bridegroom. The second, servants waiting for the return of their master. And finally, the story we have is King Jesus. And he says that when he returns in his glory, that all people will stand before him. All people from all nations. It doesn't matter what you believed. It doesn't matter where you lived. It doesn't matter what you put your trust in. It says that everyone, all people, they will stand before him. And he will separate them one from another. Like a shepherd at night, he will separate the true sheep from the goats. Because they look the same from a distance, but a good shepherd knows there's a difference. And the sheep will be ushered into the kingdom of God and receive eternal life. And the goats will be cast into the darkness and the fire and receive eternal punishment. And at the end of this last story, there's one question that we should be asking. And the question is, what is the difference between a sheep and a goat? What is the difference between someone who receives eternal punishment and receives the kingdom of God? That is a massive, massive question over your life, right? The question isn't when are these things going to happen? The question is, who are you? Which end of the story is your end of the story? What's the difference between people who are true disciples of Jesus and those who are merely imposters? And before we answer that question, I want us to just read one more line. 
Because this, this whole series of stories, it doesn't end with a story. It ends with a statement from Jesus. So this is how chapter 26 starts, okay? Read the very next lines right after Jesus says, And these will go away into eternal punishment, but into eternal life. Jesus says this, When Jesus had finished all of these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming. And the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. That's how Matthew ends this whole section. And the reason Matthew ends it that way is because Matthew is really concerned that we don't misunderstand what Jesus is saying. And if you just read these stories fast and you don't read them carefully, which is a lot of the way we read the Bible most of the time, isn't it? He says, you might walk away and think like this. You go, okay, I need to get the oil. I need to be a good steward of the things God's given me. And I need to take care of the least of these around me. Because this is the difference between me being accepted by God and me being rejected by him. That my life, right, my actions, my good works in the world, those are going to determine in the end if I am accepted by God or not. And so you might leave this place determined once again to be the kind of person that does these things and you're going to work really hard because all your eternity hangs in the balance. Uh, no. No, no. Jesus ends these series of stories talking about the cross and we know from the cross that Jesus died for people who are not worthy so we, we know that what these stories can't mean is that at the end of time there are worthy people and unworthy people and worthy people receive the kingdom of God and unworthy people do not. The cross of Jesus says that's not true. Everyone is unworthy. That's why Jesus had to pay the price for their sins. And so you go, okay, well, then what is this? What is the difference between these people? Well, go back, look closer at these stories, and just look at the last story with me, okay? What is the difference between these two groups of people? It seems obvious, doesn't it? There's some disciples who actually cared for the least of these, and there's some that didn't, right? There's those who did justice and mercy with their lives, and there's those who did not. It seems like this is the difference. But that's not what it says. Look closer. It says this. To the righteous, what does Jesus say to the righteous? He says, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And what does he say to the the unrighteous, the people who are going to be cursed. He, he says the same thing, but just the opposite. He says, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. This is not about people being weighed on a scale. Did they do justice and mercy enough to receive the blessing and be counted righteous by God? It isn't a scale in which one person outweighed the other. Their justice and their mercy was enough to kind of tip the scale. No, these two groups of people are having very similar things said about them, but they are being judged according to a completely different set of rules. It is completely different, right? The first people, it isn't that they always live with justice and mercy and doing the goodness of God into the world. No, Jesus looked at their life. 
He looks at their life and he finds one single good work. That one time you blessed someone. And he looks at that and he points it and he says, look, there it is. Righteous. You were actually doing that for me. I count that as doing it for me. The least of my brothers, you were really doing it for me. And in the second group, he does the exact opposite. He goes, this one single failure, that one person that you didn't do that to, Jesus points that out and he says, that one person, that one time that you walked on the other side of the road, that was really me. You weren't doing it for me. It, it, you understand what I'm saying? It isn't a scale. It is a completely different framework. It's a completely different set of rules. Why are these two people being judged completely different? It is because one of them... It's because one of them is under the grace and mercy of God and the other one is not. That is the difference between these people. They could have lived almost the exact same life. They could have been generous in the exact same way to the exact same kind of people and God's view of their lives is the exact opposite because one of them is under the grace and mercy of God and one of them is not. One of them knows the king and the other ones just heard about him. This is what every single story is actually saying, right? What is the difference between these servants, right? Well, one made a profit and the other buried his talent. No, no, that's a difference, but it's not the main difference. It isn't about his lack of investment in the things of God. It's about why he didn't invest in the kingdom of God. And the story tells us why. He didn't know the master, Right? That's what his words say. His idea of the master, it is completely twisted and it's completely false. This is a servant who has never experienced grace. He doesn't have a relationship with him like the others do. His view of God is like a cruel taskmaster, reaping where he doesn't sow. This is such a false view of God. And that's the point of the story. He doesn't know God at all. This is the God who became flesh so that he could bleed out and die for us. And the view that this man has of God is that he is a hard man, reaping where he doesn't sow. God does bring injustice into the world, but it is injustice against himself. God does reap what he doesn't sow. But he does that by bearing the sins and the punishment that he didn't earn so that he, could, so that he could give us a salvation that we couldn't afford. The point of this story is that this servant has never actually received the grace of his master. He doesn't know him at all. And it's because of this, it's because of that, that he doesn't live like the other servants. Why are the virgins not led into the party? not because they didn't have enough oil. No, it's because when they finally get there and they're at the door, they don't know Jesus. And Jesus doesn't know them. Your standing with God, whether you are a sheep or a goat, it doesn't rest on your goodness. And it does not rest on your moral performance. It rests on whether you are under the grace of God or not. 
That is the only thing that matters in the end. And this passage of scripture is not saying something different. It's not saying something different. It isn't that your life doesn't matter. No, it does matter. It matters so much. And Jesus is giving us these stories as like a wake-up call. They're like these smelling salts that are supposed to kind of wake you up and shake you and cause you to look at your life and look at your life through the lens of these stories and asking the question, am I ready for Jesus to come back? Am I ready for Jesus to come back? Which group of these people does my life more resemble? And no matter how you answer that question, the answer isn't to work hard to become these kind of people, but the answer is to come back again and again to the foot of the cross. That's the answer. It's again and again to come back to the foot of the cross. It's not to go out into the world and figure out how do I just be a better steward and then God will accept me. No, if you're not a good steward, the point of the story is go back to Jesus. Go back to the foot of the cross. That's where each of these stories ends. That's how Jesus ends. He says, you know, that after two days, the Passover is coming and I'm going to be crucified. If you want to be a risk-taking, generous steward of all that God has given you, you will never be able to actually do that until you realize that God has already given up everything he had for you. That you had nothing to bring to God and you had nothing to bargain with. And it was in that state that God saved you and he bled out and he died for you and he purchased you. People who have experienced that kind of grace, they don't live calculated lives. They don't. No, they live radical, passionate lives of sacrifice and worship for the one who did this for them. You want to be the kind of person who loves the least of these, right? Like the kind of Christians we're supposed to be that the people God identifies with and loves, that we actually love and identify with those people. You want to love the least of these? You want to give up your comforts and your life to care for the poor and the marginalized? You're never going to be able to do that until you realize that this is what God has already done for you. The grace of Jesus hitting your life is what will make you into that kind of person. To realize that God's done that for you. That you were poor and Jesus became poor so that you could become rich. That you were in prison, you were trapped in slavery and Jesus became bound so that you could be set free. That you were naked and Jesus was stripped of his royal robe so that he could give them to you. That you were hungry and thirsty and so Jesus became hungry and thirsty so that you could be given the bread and water of life. What Jesus is doing with these parables is he's giving us a diagnosis of our real problem. It isn't external, it is internal. The reason we aren't prepared, the reason that many of us are, are frankly really bad stewards of the things that God's given us, the reason that we struggle to take care of the least of these in our lives, it's because there's something about grace we have yet to understand. There's something about the cross of Jesus that is yet to hit us. There's something about what Jesus has done that is yet to come into full contact with us. And each of these stories is meant not to get us to 
to leave the cross and run out into the world and just figure out how do I do this? How do I do this? How do I do this? No. The point of these stories is that they would lead you back to the place you started, the foot of the cross. Because the foot of the cross is where bad stewards are forgiven. The foot of the cross is where unprepared people who have no oil can be filled where people who have lived lives of injustice can receive the grace and mercy of God. And when you experience the grace, the free, undeserved grace of Jesus at the foot of his cross, you always leave a changed person. Let's pray. Jesus, I love that at the end of these stories, as you give us pictures of two different kinds of people, at the very end of that you say, I'm about to go and be crucified. And that at the end of the day, the real difference between people isn't going to be whether they're generous, because no one's generous. The real difference between people isn't going to be whether they brought mercy and justice into the world because none of us have done that. But the real difference between people are going to be whether they have received your blood over their forehead. Whether they have been given a completely new set of rules they're going to be judged by. Not according to the failure in their lives but according to your righteousness. Jesus, I love that at the end of it all that we are not going to hear you say be cast out from my presence but we are going to hear you say well done my good and faithful servant. Jesus, lead us back to the cross each and every day. God, I just pray for Veritas Church as we as we head out, God, I pray that you would keep every single person in this room close to you. God, don't let us wander. God, don't let this church wander from the gospel. Don't let us go and try to earn our own salvation. But God, would we just every single day of our lives come back to the foot of the cross and say, Jesus, I need mercy. I need grace because I am blowing it. Because every time we do that, you say, yes. Oh, here's grace. It is free. It wasn't free for me, but it's free for you. Jesus, would that grace change us more and more into the kind of people that love people the way we should and the people that steward the things in our lives as we should. And God, prepare us for that day when you come back. We want to be ready. In your name, amen.